Blog Talk Radio. The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help their fellow man, hoping we can make it better. Yes, here we are. One, once again, it's Tuesday night and time for Blog Talk Radio on the catch. And you know what we try to do here? We try to help you uh, as believers or as those who are searching for faith to figure out how to think about the world that we live in. That's really uh, our goal here with uh, this Tuesday night uh, blog talk radio and we're fortunate to just have some wonderful people and great thinkers to help expand our mind and help us go go deeper you know i think there's just a lot of christians today in our culture who unfortunately i don't think they're thinking very deeply they're, they're just kind of going along with the flow and um and 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 the christian world has gotten in to a bunch of stuff where it really shouldn't be and they've gotten into bed with people they shouldn't be in bed with and a lot of things have happened but nobody's really saying much about it and uh, no one seems to know what to do about it um but i have to tell you about a year ago i guess or less than that um i ran across a book called jesus and john wayne how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And I said to Marty, we got to get this book. And so we got it. And uh, uh, I ended up, my wife doesn't read as much. She's just not a reader. She's very dyslexic and it's very slow process for her. So when we get something we really want to go through, I just read it together. I read her this whole book. Um, and uh, we couldn't, we just had to keep going with it because uh, it, it's a book that, that put together a whole lot of what's going on in this Christian culture that we have uh, ended up with. And um, uh, and so today, uh, oh, we are just so grateful and excited to have the author of this book uh, on the show with us tonight, today. And I forgot to ask her about the proper pronunciation of her name, so maybe she can help me with that. But it's uh, it's Christian Kristen Cobes Dumez, and she is a history professor from Calvin University in Michigan, and she has written this book on Jesus and John Wayne, which talks about uh, masculinity and the Christian and but. The thing that my wife and I were most interested in, how it really traced uh, the development of the Christian subculture that we've kind of been on that roller coaster ride uh, for the last 40 years. So um, I'm just so delighted to have with us today, uh, Kristen, welcome to Blog Talk Radio. 
Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And yes, I'll I'll handle the name pronunciation. It's an impossible name. It's Kristen <laughs> Cobus Dume. Oh, great, Cobus Dume. Now, tell me yep. about tell me about that. Is that um, <laughs> where does it come from? Yeah, okay. it's it's a mouthful, Kristen. Uh, that meaning is follower of Christ. My parents chose that very intentionally. Uh, come from a very mm-hmm. religious family. Cobus is actually a Dutch name, a very uncommon Dutch name, taken as well as we can figure from the name Jacobus or Jacob. And that's my family name. And then when I got married, I added my husband's name, which is Dume, French, but actually Huguenot. So it's it's really Dutch in disguise. I come from a a Dutch family. Uh, My mom was an immigrant, and I married into another Dutch family. So I grew up in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Yeah, and you're right in the center of it there, aren't you? In, uh, yes. In, 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 is that Iowa or, I'm sorry, is it right? I, yeah, I grew is, up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Iowa, and now I live at the other center. I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I teach history okay. at Calvin University. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, uh, Kristen, I'm so happy you wrote this book. Um, are you getting a lot of pushback from it, or what's the, what's the reaction so far? Uh, you know, so far, the book has been out for a year now, just released in paperback a couple of weeks ago. And so it has, uh, the response has been enormously positive, um, particularly hmm. from evangelicals themselves. Uh, that said, there has been a little pushback. Uh, a couple months ago, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire picked up on it, and that produced a bit of uh, negative uh, feedback. And then I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago with uh, the Daily Beast on the movie Braveheart. And uh, that annoyed Ted Cruz and uh, Fox <laughs> News just a bit. And so uh, that also produced a bit of uh, pushback. But on the whole, I'll have to say the response has been enormously positive and particularly from conservative evangelicals themselves. Well, don't you think maybe, Kristen, that uh, my interpretation of that response would be there's a lot of people out there who have been concerned that something's gone wrong and, yeah. but we don't know what it is. And that's what your book did for me. It helped me to start to put some pieces together on what has yeah. gone wrong. You think that's true? That's absolutely true. You know, I, I heard from so many readers. I still do every day. I've, I've heard from well over a thousand since the book has come out. And and they almost all say some version of the same thing, which is, this is the story of my life, but I mm. never understood how all these pieces fit together. And so it's so familiar to them. This is a history of evangelical popular culture. It's a history of the evangelicalism that so many people just experience on a day-to-day level. Um, and at the same time, they didn't fully comprehend what they were a part of and how we ended up where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. What made you decide to write this book in the first place, Kristen? So I started researching evangelical masculinity back in the early 2000s, a long time ago. And I did so because a couple of students brought a book to my attention. I had just lectured on Teddy Roosevelt in my U.S. history course. Uh, I wanted to show my students how gender worked in history, how masculinity was linked to economic shifts and to foreign policy and to race and religion. 
And after class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And I took their advice, went down to Family Christian Bookstore, bought myself a copy. And this was, again, early 2000s. The book was this massive bestseller. It would sell more than 4 million copies. And sure enough, I opened it up. And he opens with, Eldridge opens with a a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And he goes on to sketch a very militant and militaristic conception of what he called Christian manhood. And that was intriguing to me as a historian of gender and culture. And this was right uh, during the time of the early years of the Iraq War. And I was seeing all this survey data showing how white evangelicals were far and away more uh, supportive of the Iraq War, of preemptive war in general, uh, condoned the use of torture more than any other Americans. So I just asked the question of evangelicals that historians had asked in, in Teddy, of, of Teddy Roosevelt in his era, what might one have to do with the other? What might this aggressive, militant conception of Christian masculinity have to do with evangelical politics, both in terms of foreign policy and also domestic politics? And that, that's where the book started. I wow. set the research aside. For about a decade, actually, um, I was working on other projects. I had three kids in the ensuing years, and it was in the fall of 2016, uh, in the weeks after, the days after the Access Hollywood tape release, actually, uh, when the whole country, the whole world was asking, you know, how could white evangelicals support a man like Donald Trump, uh, that this research just came back to me, and I realized that what we were seeing wasn't a betrayal of evangelical values. It was in many ways a fulfillment of their values mm-hmm. if you place an aggressive patriarchal uh, masculinity at the core of evangelicalism. Wow. Wow. Oh, boy. Um, well, that maybe is what helped put it all together for me. And I let me just uh, – I, I shared some of this with you earlier when we spoke, uh, you know, as a – as a participant in the Jesus movement, uh, mm-hmm. one of the first to wed popular music to faith. Um, you know, we were trying to save the world with our guitars and what mm-hmm. we ended up seeing after a few years was a actual, another culture being formed by not just Christian music, but Christian books, Christian movies, Christian, you know, yellow pages, Christian pencils with doves on them, you know, <laughs> Christian everything. Yes. And, and suddenly I'm going, what is going on here? And uh, one, of the thing I, one of the things I noticed, I want to talk with you a little bit later, is that the fear, I, I began to discover, I think there is a fear element here. People are trying mm-hmm. to get away from a scary world and they want a safe world. So we're going to create our own safe world. So you go to, you know, a Christian booksellers association and you find tables and tables of everything you could fill your life with that's safe. And uh, yeah. you don't, yeah, yeah, you don't have to. And, and uh, even, even Christian music. I remember the, the Christian radio, there was a uh, one station that used to always say uh, music that's safe for the whole family. And, yes. and then there was another one. This one really got me. Music you don't have to worry about your kids listening to. Mm-hmm. Boy, that really got me because I thought, well, I think we should worry about that if we're not worried. You know, <laughs> in other, you know, 
In other words, you don't have to, if you put your kid with us, give your kid to us and you don't have to worry about him anymore. We'll take care of him. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty scary if we're not teaching kids how to actually interpret the world for themselves, much less, Mm -hmm. you know, that I have someone else. So in other words, I got a little too much into that, but I've watched Mm -hmm. this whole culture thing grow. And then the Christians get into the culture wars and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and the coalesce over politics and uh, all of a sudden, you know, we as Christians have become the bad news to society, mm-hmm. the carriers of good news. That's, I think, my biggest, biggest concern about this. And uh, yeah. uh, your book is the closest I have come to answering how, how we got there. Um, is there any way in just a few brief minutes you could kind of trace some of that for us how we got from sure. you know Jesus music to you know this to Donald Trump you know <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you know I think I think you're right first to point out that there are varied intentions here varied motivations and that many people were involved at at different points in the story uh, for, with good intentions, right? Wanting to, right. to save the world, wanting to bring the good news of Jesus to their neighbors. Uh-huh. Um, but that's not the only story here. And uh, in the book, I write about the, the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942. And if you look at some of their founding uh, documents, they talk about wanting to band together. They felt isolated, they felt marginalized, and they wanted to assert their influence throughout American culture. And one of the Mm. ways they planned to do that was through popular culture, through the radio, through taking to the airwaves, and through, uh, through Christian publishing, and eventually would see through Christian television as well. And, and so they form, you know, the book, Christian Booksellers Association, and, and they have plans to reach into not just big cities, but small towns across the country and through this popular culture. And, uh, and that's, it, it's really remarkable that they achieved these goals, right? Christian magazines, Christian publishing. Now, the thing yeah. is to appeal to the broad audience, the mass audience, they had to downplay theological distinctives. But they had to downplay denominational um, issues that would divide mm-hmm. the market. Um, so one of the ways that they did this was to uh, write books and, and um, market materials on Christian living, how to be a Christian man, how to be a Christian woman, how to raise your children. And, mm-hmm. and, and this comes, this starts to dominate that evangelical marketplace. And um, and really moved to the center of evangelical identity. Now, I'll also say that, again, there are plenty of good intentions here, but there is also a ton of money changing hands here. And that's one of the things I tried to do throughout the book is make the money visible. Um, and so what you see happening is, you know, there are these good intentions. And then also this is this is an industry and it is um, it, it works for those who are, you know, for Christian publishers and, and for Christian writers and for those who are making money in this marketplace mm-hmm. to tell consumers to stay away. Stay away from secular uh, magazines, from secular news, from secular music, right? The mm-hmm. dangers are out there. And we have God's truth. Why would you want to expose yourself or your children to, you know, to sources that, that don't have God's truth? 
And so there's a lot of money to be made, and there's an ideology that gets reinforced by telling people, be afraid of what's out there and stay inside these spaces and spend your money here. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, fear is a huge motivation uh, to do that. Yes. And. Yeah, I'll say that when I started writing this book, I was kind of working with the understanding um, that, you know, evangelical um, politics and kind of radicalized politics was a response to fear, right? They were afraid of demographic declines. They were afraid of the, you know, challenges to religious liberty. They were afraid of kind of fill in the blanks. In the past, they were afraid of communism, and then they were afraid of secular humanism. And and so it was that fear that led them to militancy, um, because, you know, what else could they do? But when I went back into the historical sources, I realized that more often than not, we really needed to flip that script, that in, in specific cases, it was the militancy that came first. In, mm. in situations like Jerry Falwell Sr.'s Thomas Road Baptist Church, in Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church, Right, the whole chapter that I tell about these fake yeah. ex-Muslim terrorists, right? In each of those cases, the militancy was there first, and then leaders actively stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to consolidate their own power, in order to drive donations, to fill their coffers, and in order to, to maintain their own authority. And once that clicked for me, really a lot of these pieces fell into place. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, uh, you, um, you 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 don't pull any punches. I mean, Dobson, Falwell, Graham, Trump. You know, they you stuck your nose into a lot of people's business and and ministries. And uh, what gave what gave you the courage to do that? <laughs> I think I was just born this way. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, to be honest. I, I have, I've gotten some feedback from evangelicals themselves who say, you know, you are so courageous because you named names. And I have to say that as a historian, I don't know how to write without naming names, right? I, I just, this is not my first history book that I've written. And so I, I use the same methodologies, right? I'm telling the story. I'm looking at at who are the central figures, and then I'm analyzing it in terms of power dynamics, and I'm looking at, at what are the, the implications here. And I didn't think that what I was doing was so revolutionary. And I really only fully comprehended this after the book release, saw how disruptive it was to many evangelicals themselves, who, again, like lived this story, and yet mm-hmm. didn't really understand what was happening. And and then I, I, I realized that there is this culture of deference that uh, really does keep many within evangelical spaces, churches, organizations, from speaking the truth. They, they are taught to obey their authorities, you know, uh, and these are gendered hierarchies, and this is children obey your parents, but this is also obey your pastor, respect your leader, and, and this culture of deference is enforced and reinforced. And, and I think that over time, cumulatively, this has brought us to where we are now. Too few people who saw what was happening spoke out against it, named what was happening. And that's because doing so does come at a cost. Uh, you're not going to get uh, invited to the big conference uh, if, if, you, if you question one of the leaders who's platformed there. Yeah. 
who's going to blurb your book if you criticize one of these big names? They're in cahoots, right? So one of the things I really yeah. try to do in this book is chase the alliances and map that out and show how, how power operated in these circles. Now, I'm coming from kind of inside, outside. I'm a Christian. I teach at an evangelical college. But I'm a historian. I'm tenured, and I have academic freedom. And I just wanted to write the most accurate and most powerful history that I could because I didn't need anything from any of these people. And I think that's why the story feels quite different from many yeah. of the, the stories about evangelicals written by evangelicals themselves. Right, right. Well, I am so glad you did. Uh, you know, um, in my, I, I'm not, in the last few years, I haven't been quite as involved in the subculture as I was maybe 20, 15 years ago, uh, because I was traveling constantly around the country, speaking Christian colleges, um, doing radio interviews, so talking to people on radio. And everywhere along the way, Kristen, I would, I would find somebody who would kind of, it was almost like being in a communist country and, and somebody whispering, you know, yeah. to me, I, something's wrong here, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell, tell whispering, me what, you're right. Yeah, you know, tell me what it is. And so as soon as I read your book, I started you know, recommending it to a lot of these people who, you know, there's a manager of a radio station and one of my favorite people. She's a manager's radio station in Fort Wayne. And she would, every time I wrote a book, she'd have me on and we'd talk. And then when we were done talking, we'd talk about the Christian subculture. And she was, she was even on the board. She was on the board of the, the National Religious Broadcasters that you that you mentioned mm. and uh, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact she walked out of a board meeting she she resigned because of something going on that she could not support and yeah. uh, I don't even remember the details now but I, she just was a lady who was like that you know I mean mm -hmm. she, I, I just admired her so much and uh, so there are these people out there you know who are who are ready for this and uh, yes. it's just, I guess, what I wonder now is, you know, where do we go from here? I know you're a historian, so that's probably not your main thing. You need, you, need, you know, I think, you know, I think my, my gift, I do think my spiritual gifts is, is in the area of prophecy. But, but uh, you mm -hmm. know, I, I just wonder if you have some inclinations about yeah. Where we are where we are now and what could possibly happen from here. Yeah, you know, I think the most important thing is that people are courageous. People who are in these spaces, the people who have been whispering have to start speaking out. And that doesn't mean shouting something on social media, right? I mean, it might, but it can look very different. And I've been connected, you know, since this book has come out to so many people who are who are working in their spaces sometimes at great personal cost, you know, whether it's in a church, whether it's pastors trying to, you know, from the pulpit and in their communities, challenge Christian nationalism, uh, challenge this syncretism that they see all around them, you know, challenge the, their um, you know, people in the pews to love their neighbors as themselves. What does that look like? You know, to offer a, a vision of Christianity that is about divesting of power, not grasping for power. I see people in organizations taking courageous stands. Sometimes that looks like posting a picture of Jesus and John Wayne on social media. <laughs> a lot of people are kind of using the book as a, 
as a symbol of, hey, guys, we need to talk. We need to wrestle with this. I know people who have lost their jobs for doing that. Um, I know <laughs> people who are afraid that they will lose their jobs if they do that. But I, I know that there are so many individual acts of courage right now, and and that's not insignificant. That said, um, I, as I'm looking at evangelicalism writ large, evangelicalism is not just individuals, right? It's, it's organizations. It's these networks. And that's where on an institutional level, I'm actually seeing very little change right now. I'm seeing that the status quo holds. I'm seeing that powerful donors and constituents are continuing to enforce silence on certain issues. And so I'm actually, I'm really encouraged when I see what's happening individually, uh, incredibly mm-hmm. encouraged. When I'm seeing, when I'm looking at institutions, I'm much less hopeful. Um, so I think what we need to do now is we need a lot of courage and we need to find community with others who are asking these questions. And, uh, and we just need to keep going forward. I would also say for white Christians, what's absolutely critical is they not think that this is all on themselves, <laughs> that the fate of the, the church does not rest on uh, the faithfulness of white evangelicals, thankfully. Uh, you know, that Christianity has been flourishing and is flourishing outside of white evangelical spaces today. Right. And maybe right. to find strength and resilience and uh, sources of, of clarity outside of white Christian spaces, uh, that's something I I also recommend to people. Yeah, that was actually, you just stumbled into my next question, which really was, I I think it perhaps that for me was maybe the most, the most courageous thing you have uh, in your, to put in this, in the uh, subtitle, white, the word white evangelical, that, that, that Mm -hmm. took a lot. I mean, talk to me a little. Talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, that's it, it is. Uh, some people find that problematic. I've been accused of being a racist for using that adjective "white" in the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm a historian. It simply is a descriptive term. When you look at evangelicalism, at American evangelicalism, it is deeply divided uh, across racial lines. So if you define evangelicalism according to theological doctrines, the majority of black Protestants get put into that box. However, the vast majority of black Protestants do not identify as evangelicals, right? Because they know that there is so much more to being evangelical in America today than checking off some theological boxes. And what they mean by that theology is actually quite distinctive from white evangelicalism. And so Mm. I'm simply describing evangelicalism and this particular dominant strand, which is white evangelicalism, because it is so different from uh, black Protestantism. It is different from global evangelicalism. I'm just describing something as precisely as possible. And so much of what, um, what counts for Christianity among white evangelicals that they see as just default Christianity is actually uh, reflective of their white racial identity. It's something like Christian nationalism, the idea that America yeah. was founded as a Christian nation and has to be somehow returned to this, this ideal state really only makes sense if you are a white American, right? Black Christians will have a very different, a very prophetic understanding of the history of America and its relationship uh, in terms of faithful Christianity. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. It really, I've heard, you know, there's one word I've heard come up so many times just in the last uh, 
20 minutes, and that's the word power. Uh, is it really yeah. all about power? It, is that... It's not all about power, and that's what's so tricky about this, right? There are so many good intentions wrapped up in this. The gospel hmm. is wrapped up in this, right? There are people who, who firmly believe that this is Christianity, that this, this, this what I call a corruption of the faith, Christianity, mm-hmm. you know, the gospel truth that is wrapped up in, in this grasp for power, that is wrapped up in a white racial identity, in Christian nationalism, right? There are many people that are unable to see that, that those things are intertwined and that one is hurting the other. Um, mm. And so, so mm. it's not, if it were just about power, it would not be this powerful, right? There is goodness that is wrapped up in this. And, oh. and so the challenge is to address that, to, to help Christians to see that what you have, what has been packaged and sold, actually, it just contains layers of these cultural allegiances and cultural values, some of which actually undercut the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. Mm. Wow. And that's, you know, that's my biggest concern, Kristen, is that um, with all of this We've gotten Christians have gotten tons of media, uh, you know, coverage and interest, but mm-hmm. where I, I don't hear it anywhere. What was that? That that we've gotten a lot of interest and uh, it cut out just a little bit there. Oh yeah, um, but where is the gospel? The gospel never Where's shows the gospel? up. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The gospel gets lost in, in because there's so much of this cultural packaging that gets added to it. And it does it stifle the gospel message that is love of neighbor as yourself. Right. It's this radical, radical countercultural message that, you know, the Jesus of the gospels came to divest himself of power and to follow Christ is to do likewise. And that is no easy task for any of us, but that is what we ought to be aspiring to. And if we don't, if, if, we're, if we're claiming that we need to seize power, uh, that gospel message is so easily corrupted, but we can do so and feel so confident that what we're doing, we're doing in the name of Christ. Yeah, amen. Uh, we're coming to the close here. I'm going to push this just a little bit. Are you okay for just a few more, sure. couple more minutes? Um because there's just so much. I mean, I, I'm, I'm already knowing we're going to have to have you back at some point. But, um, I, you know, the subtitle speaks about two things, how white evangelicals mm-hmm. corrupted a faith. And we've talked about that uh, a good deal. Mm-hmm. And fractured a nation. And we didn't talk much about that. Could you, yeah. could you talk about that part a little bit? How have we fractured yeah. a nation? Yeah. Well, first let me say that, that the first part, the, how they corrupted a faith. That's the part of the the subtitle I thought most carefully about and was most uncomfortable with because I'm a historian and I write as a historian, but that's actually not a a historical claim. That is a theological claim. So that's where I'm tipping my hand just a bit. Hey, Mm -hmm. I'm a a Christian, but mostly I wanted to speak to evangelicals on their own terms, right? You know, Bible-believing Christians. So that's a little theological claim there. The second part, Fractured a Nation, is because this, this story doesn't just matter for evangelicals. It doesn't just matter if you care about the gospel. 
and the church in America. It matters if you care about America and if you care about the state of our democracy. Um, because mm. what we see is this us versus them mentality that really takes hold and comes to define evangelical identity mm. is really bad for a flourishing democracy. Uh, it's really bad for a system that needs political compromise, requires us to love our neighbors, to look out for the common good that many of these um, these impulses that have moved to the center of white evangelicalism, this militancy, this aggressiveness, this um, us versus them mentality, the idea that the ends will justify the means, all of this is really bad for the health of American democracy. And I wanted to make clear that this is not just a book for evangelicals and people who care mm-hmm. about evangelicalism. It's also a book for people who care about America. Wow. Oh, that's great. Well, well put. I, I love that. And uh, in fact, I, I mentioned to you, I, I've been reading a couple of bo- other books along those lines, and, and, and we're going to have some of them, uh, uh, some of those authors on in the future, so we can delve into that a little bit more. Uh, well, gosh, this was so much fun. Um, tell me uh, real quick now about your next project, because this sounds very interesting. Sure. My next book is right now called Live, Laugh, Love, and it is a cultural history of white Christian womanhood, somewhat similar to Jesus and John Wayne in that it looks at uh, uh, evangelical um, and then just more broadly uh, Christian popular culture and looks at how ideals of femininity and domesticity um, kind of change over time. It analyzes this in terms of economics, in terms of post-feminism, and also in terms of white supremacy. Hmm. Wow. That sounds like a big project. How, how, how is that going? How, when do you think, uh, uh, uh how much right now we're looking at 2023. Yeah. 2023. It's, the problem is my books are very deeply researched. If you know, uh-huh. having read it, there's a lot of footnotes there. And so I can't, I can't just turn these things around in a few months. Right now we are yeah. deep in the research. I've got three research assistants helping me, um, Calvin students, and I, what I can say thus far is the research is going fabulously well. Oh, good, good, that's great. Well, um, uh, I, I guess I, I had one <clears throat> one more uh, one more question that I wanted to ask you, and um, great, now now I lost it. <laughs> um, it oh, oh yes, um, what I'm what do you I'm sure there are some people who say, "Well, yes, you're you're a historian, uh, mm-hmm. but but you know this is uh, uh, this is just this is just your opinion. What what's the difference yeah. between this being yeah. your opinion and and being the way things really are? You know that. Yeah. What do you say? Yeah, about that? you know. Um, I, 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 I've heard a couple of assertions like that um, online, and, and usually before I can even answer, uh, some of my readers will jump in. You know, tell them, you know, you need you need to look at those thirty plus pages of endnotes, and and then and then we can talk again. Um, and and actually, I have more people who who describe the book as purely objective than who are are complaining that it's opinion. In fact, I have to often push back against my fans who say this is 
such an objective history. There is no opinion in this. It is quote after quote, and, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. you know, you just you, you let the, the actors speak for themselves, and, and it is just damning. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have to come in and say, actually, as a story, and I need to say that there is no such thing as objective history, right? The very facts that I gathered are, you know, are selective, and I am – uh, building them into a narrative, and I'm arguing a thesis. So I'm actually often pushing back on the other side because this book feels so encyclopedic. It feels so densely researched, and it is, but there still is a, there's an interpretive arc to it. And so, uh, you know, I would just say to any critics, you read the book and read the end notes very carefully, and then, you know, if, if you don't like this interpretive uh, arc, then what narrative would you come up with to, that explains these facts, that explains these quotes, that explains this, this undeniable timeline that we see. Uh, you know, so is this revisionist history? Um, all history that contributes to our understanding is in some way revising what came before. I would say this book doesn't replace existing histories of evangelicalism, but it does come alongside them and that these histories have to now be in conversation with each other. Wow. So that's why we have so many historians, right? Yes, that's what we do. We love to argue. We love to build on each other's work. We love to, you yeah. know, uh, to take it the next step and to challenge. Yeah. And that's just the discipline of history. And that's why it's so much fun. And to a certain extent, they can all be right. Can't they? Yeah. You know, you need to be, they can be right. Some can be more right than, than others. Some can be <laughs> Uh, you know, what you need to ask is what, what facts are you not including? Which narratives are you decentering? Mm-hmm. Which narratives are you centering here? How, um, how then do you account for the stories that aren't in your book? Because no book can cover everything. These are mm-hmm. the conversations that we need to have. And also, did you do right by your sources? I know that I, I saw early on when the book yeah. came out, a couple of conservatives uh, who ended up com- becoming big promoters of the book say, you know what, when I read some of these quotes, I thought, no way. And I went back to the original source and I saw not only did she quote them accurately, but there was so much more she could have done with these and it checks out. And you know, I was really glad to have some of these, these doubters voice their doubts and then take the next step. That's what footnotes are for. Verify and say, actually, this checks out. And so, you know, that's the way you need to read a history book. Uh. Kristen, this has just been uh, a, a wonderful half hour, and uh, I can't believe it, that we're over it yet. I will have you back at some point, um, but thank you so much for enlightening us and uh, getting the yeah, getting the the, the cogs going. Um, and uh, I just wish I could be a college student again and be in one of your classes. <laughs> Oh, it's it's a great job. I absolutely love working with my students. So, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Okay, fantastic. Well, God bless, and we will talk to you uh, again in the future. Sounds great. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Wow, everybody, huh? What do you think? That was great, huh? I got you thinking. Go out and get it if you haven't. I challenge you to read this book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Cracked the Nation. will tell you a lot about the Christian subculture, 
a lot about where we are right now and why, how we got there. And uh, it'll help you rethink what you want to be doing uh, with your faith in the world where you live. So thanks for joining us for another episode of The Catch on Blog Talk Radio. God bless you. Uh, join us again next week. We've got more exciting things. I think we're actually going to have Doug Stevens back next next week. He's a wonderful, articulate pastor um, who is very well connected to uh, the culture around him and to the church. Uh, you will really uh, appreciate Doug. So spread the word. Get people. Remember, this is now a podcast. And so you can go back to this connection and listen to it anytime you want to. And I suggest you listen to it two or three times and send it and get your friends listening. So there you go. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Take care.